This is the At 530 on Main podcast. I'm Sean Collins. And I'm Mike Davis. And we're here to discuss the convergence of digital and physical experiences in today's world. With Extend Group as an expert in designing online experiences and VPS Architecture, an expert on creating physical experiences, you will hear unique discussions on technology, theory, and more that merges our separate areas of expertise into one podcast experience. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy today's At 530 on Main podcast episode. We are live in the Extension Studio at 530 Main Street, Evansville, Indiana. I have my partner in podcast over there, Mike Davis. How are you doing this morning? Good. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Yep. We have new tech today, so we're trying all kinds of things out. So you have to give us a little grace today as we uh, got into 2023. We said, hey, we need new tech. It's been around for a while. and Let us know what you think. Tell us it sounds a little better. Today on the App 530 on Main podcast, uh, we are well into April. I can't believe it. It's April already, 2023. In the extension studio, we have Carrie Lambert. She is the artistic director, School of Ballet Indiana in Ballet Indiana. And she is joined by a student, Sarah Harple. Welcome to the App 530 on Main podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Carrie, uh, I'm going to read a little bit about her, and then she's going to tell us about her journey to Evansville, what that experience was like. She has a, a, a lot of things here in the middle. Uh, I'm going to have her lead us through, but Carrie is the artistic director of the School of Ballet Indiana and in Ballet Indiana. She received her MFA in dance from the University of Oklahoma, where she performed with Oklahoma Ballet and OU Opera Theater and was the recipient of awards for choreography and contributions to the arts. Lots of performances and lots of, of experience here in the middle. And I'm going to wrap that up with Carrie Coach's classical and contemporary dance before relocating to Indiana with her husband and her son. Carrie was the director of USC Dance Conservatory and instructor in the UC dance program where she taught ballet technique, dance history, and anatomy for dancers. There we go. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. I want to hear a little bit about your journey as well as we get into this. But uh, as we get started, Carrie, tell us a little bit about the journey between, you know, school and the introduction to ballet and where you're at today, what that journey's been like. Well, I first was exposed to ballet by watching The Nutcracker. I think that's the most common first exposure. And I told my mom I want to do that. And as soon as I learned that it was someone else who made the steps, I was like, I want to do that. So it wasn't only the dancing, but the choreography that really fascinated me. Um, so I studied years of ballet and I decided because teaching and choreography was my passion to get my master's rather than just focus on a performing career. So after I did some performing, I went and got my master's and uh, studied the art of teaching and the art of choreography, uh, as well as performing. And when I finished my degree, I went to work for a university and I loved that environment, uh, teaching you know, some of the scientific and historical aspects as well as technique. But I was really passionate about working with children. So I ended up here um, in Evansville with the School of Ballet Indiana. And I work with students um, starting at age seven, um, all the way up through high school and even adult students. We also have younger students at the school. And I 
love teaching. I love creating that experience for the dancers and nurturing them through, you know, those most important years of their life. But I also love creating for them and for the community um, in my choreography. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, Sarah, what, what led you to the ballet experience? I have two older sisters, and we're all three years apart, and my middle sister, Maddie, she um, started dance. I'm not really sure how. I think that she just liked to move and dance, so my mom put her in it, and so I was constantly exposed to that studio environment. I was constantly in the studio with her as a little tiny baby, and um, so I just kind of followed her path because I loved what she did. It fascinated me, you know, the older girls on point. That was crazy to me. I just wanted to do that. Awesome. Awesome. So as you, you know, are here in Evansville, Indiana, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, all the way from Oklahoma, your USC, like now you're in Evansville, Indiana. How is that movement and that experience shaped where, where you're at today? Like what you're delivering? Well, everywhere I've been, I've met different kinds of dancers and interacted with different kinds of people that learn different ways and have different skills and gifts that they give to a teacher and a choreographer. Um, so geographically, ballet, the language is the same. So wherever I go, I'm really doing the same thing and teaching the same thing. But the people are unique and different. Every day in the studio is different and challenging. Um, in Oklahoma, um, I was performing as well and so all those experiences of working with the choreographers and teachers inform what i do um, working in a university setting you have all dancers in the same age range and you can give them and work with them um, in a different way than you do younger dancers um, the performing there uh, was always really exciting we worked with um, the opera theater so as um, dancers performing in the opera and working with those artists, um, hearing the music that intimately was inspiring. And at USC, um, again, I worked on the, I worked in that historical and anatomical aspect as well as my dance technique uh, classes. And I was definitely done performing by then. Uh, okay. I was ready to hang up my point shoes and just teach <laughs> and choreograph. Uh, the dancers there, there was a lot of um, influence from New York City Ballet at that program. And so I got, I was exposed to that. And I also there, I learned the Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet syllabus there. And that's the syllabus that I now teach at the School of Ballet Indiana. And it's a very effective syllabus that really takes the dancer from, you know, their first steps, building one at a time through those, you know, several years um, until they're mastering the technique. Coming here, I was able to um, really shape the school to my vision and uh, I was really excited to be here because the dancers are really talented and really passionate and the parents are really supportive. We have a wonderful group of volunteers. Um, and there's also a lot of artists that I collaborate with here, um, costume designers and um, set designers and stage managers and uh, all that energy and passion goes into what we do. Awesome. So Sarah, what's your, so, you're in high school, is that right? Yes, I'm a where, junior. Junior where? At Castle High School. Castle High School. So uh, you talked a little bit about your experience and what it was like growing up and being around the influence. How has 
the the school helped you? Um, the school, my I grew up with my sister mm-hmm. being there all the time, and so seeing the other girls, I want to do that. And then we had one of our teachers. I don't know, resigned, I guess you would say. Yeah. And my mom took over the school, actually. So my sisters and I, my sister and I, could have a chance to dance. And we could actually continue what we wanted to do. And that's where Carrie came in. Um, And so just, like, hearing what other people, like, have done. My sister is now at Cincinnati Ballet, and there's so many people at our school that have graduated and done so many other things. The the influence that it has on you, it just makes you want it so bad. Wow. That's so amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, as someone who doesn't know anything about ballet and the school and thinking about the experience, one of my thoughts is, well, what, what does that look like for a student? What's that experience? When do you start you know, becoming, developing, right? Because there's different techniques. And then you're going to what school you go to might influence based on how you dance, right? So that's my limited knowledge. Just had to plug that. Yeah. (laughs) But what does that look like for school age-wise, like that experience through the program? Well, the youngest dancers we have are age three. And at that age, they're really um, learning about music and how to move with music and to internalize rhythm and the emotional responses to music. Uh, We have a really talented teacher for that age group who is very loving and nurturing. Her name is uh, Peyton, and Miss Peyton. And she um, really inspires them and motivates them, but doesn't um, impose too much technique on them because they're so young. You want to keep that improvisational spirit and creativity alive in them. But they go through that program until around the age of seven, and then they go into what we call big girl ballet, (laughs) they're very focused and they have to spend an hour concentrating on the technique and most dancers are ready for that around the age of seven some as young as six some a little bit older just depends and first they work at the bar where they stand holding on to a support and at that level we're really focusing on the shape of their body the alignment Um, the basics of technique are like how you work your knees and your feet Uh, turnout, which is external rotation at the hip joint, and then how you hold your spine, and then the shapes of the arms and the positions. And it takes a long time for them to internalize that. Uh, Once they have that alignment, um, they're moving up in the levels, they start to work more on musicality, uh, the quality of the movement in relation to the music, dynamics like sharp movements, smooth movements, uh, connecting movements. And then as they move even further, um, they start to work on the phrasing details of um, individual steps and then steps in a series. And just like you'd imagine it, you know, you start with a simple bend of the knees and that bend of the knees um, expands to become, uh, rises up onto demi point, which is almost on the toes, and then eventually into full point, which is up on your toes. And so each step builds over time and eventually they're doing lots of turns on one leg, which we call pirouettes. Um, or fuetes, which is a series of multiple turns on one leg. They start with jumps on two feet, and eventually they go up to jumps like leaps going from one foot to the other. Uh, so everything builds, and um, at first you're, you're learning these very basic movements, and the big dancers motivate you. They're really right. exciting and inspiring because you want to look like them. And the little ones have favorites. You know, they'd say, oh, I want to be just like Sarah. You know, Sarah can jump, Sarah can turn, I want to be like her. And so there's a 
sort of a camaraderie and uh, almost a big sister, little sister relationship um, at the studio. They spend a lot of time hanging out there, especially the advanced dancers, because they dance six days a week. So they'll be there in the lounge, hanging out with their friends, um, as well as working in the studio. The youngest ones um, have once a week classes and it builds from there. So as a former baseball coach and a softball coach now, we work a lot in our practices on fundamentals and we do them over and over and over and over again, you know, and to the point where it's like, are you serious? We have to do this drill again, <laughs> right? So how hard is it for a student, you know, as you hear, like I'm going into big girl ballet, the, the, is it, do you automatically have the discipline, Sarah, to go, you know what, I'm going to imitate over and over and over again until I get that right, until I get up to my, you know, the toe, and then I'm fully up doing the pirouette? Or do you want to go immediately to, I want to dance like Sarah, and you try to go there? <laughs> well, um, I would say as a little kid, you definitely learn discipline. Ballet is such a disciplined um, sport. When I was little, I was really restless, and I, I just wanted to, I didn't want to go through the path. I just wanted to go straight there yeah. <laughs> but you learn over time that the only way you can get there is through learning I mean every ballet class starts with plies and we do them every single day there's not a class that doesn't really have a plies and I've been doing that since I learned technique in ballet and so I think that you know when you're little and you learn a new step it's so exciting and you're like oh I just can't wait for that next step and then you learn and you build off of that trying to perfect one thing to get to another yeah something that Mike and I talk about a lot and it's that you know even as he comes in and he sees new students and interns come up they often you know want to innovate before they've perfected the you know the one thing whether it be the detail <laughs> drawing or the build and uh, I'm always interested in, in how and in, in what tech techniques you use as a teacher to help them understand that foundational uh, basis. Have any tips for those out there going, okay, before you go here, we have to do this. I talk about that from the very first level. Um, you know, I say, what does this step grow up to be? And we talk about that. How does it develop? And I talk about how the simple steps you do at the beginning of class affect the big steps you do at the end. If you do your most beautiful plies, which is a bend of the knees, your most beautiful tendus, which is a stretch of the leg, if you do them well at the beginning of class, by the time you get to the end of class, you'll do those same movements bigger, but you'll have the beauty already in them. So I, I try to make that as much of it as conscious to the dancers as possible. And I try to inspire them and motivate them with that all right, this, you do this today, it's more beautiful today than yesterday, and you eventually progress um, to the more exciting steps that you see the big girls doing. Yeah, it's that 90-10, right? Yeah. 90% practice training to do 10% of the show or the work. Yes. Um, and I think that's true of anything you do, and it's really, yeah, it, well, and with social media and digital age we live in, it's so much harder to get kids to understand because they see the the top, the best of the best, it's constantly in their face, and they just think, oh, they magically got there. They don't see the 10,000 hours of work <laughs> they put in, right? Yes. Yeah, it's 365, 24-7, and, you know, even as a as extend group, when we 
have individuals come in for the first time and they're out of college and, you know, first entry level design position, the first thing they'll, they'll do is just open up Illustrator and start to make a logo or, you know, make an identity or, you know, they'll open up InDesign and start a print ad and we're like, wait a minute, like, stop. Like, what, what's the foundation of the document? Like, what's your wireframe going to look like? Sketch that out. How does that headline look? What's that going, you know, how is the communication going to flow through the paperwork, you know, that you're actually going, going to engage uh, someone with? How does that look here before you actually just start it? And, you know, it gets to efficiencies. Everybody just wants to open the, the software and, you know, be amazing at the task, which is how do you do it in Photoshop or Illustrator or whatever that is. But if you can conceptualize it first, really, that's just a production step in there. And I think. Uh, yeah. And so how for for you, you know, because you mentioned set Pete working with set people who set designers and so how does that as a performance because there's that physical connection an audience member watching you on stage they're seeing the backgrounds they're seeing and talk a little bit about how that all comes together because it, you probably have there's choreography that has to go right and so it starts with a concept that idea of sketching it out it's how i start um i usually in the past have had to work with pre-recorded music um, somebody else's idea of a ballet that I then um, choreograph. But this year, this spring, I was able to come up with my concept, my story, my outline first, and have a composer write the music. And it's been uh, amazing. I never want to go back and do it the other <laughs> way. So it really starts with that concept. I sketched out, like, what story did I want to tell? How did I want to tell it? In what scenes? In what order? With what characters? Once I have all of that concept and detail, then I reach out to the other artists that I'm collaborating with. Uh, I started with um, the composer, Henry Chang, Maestro Henry Chang, and he is, you know, working on the music. He um, collaborated with some other composers to create that, and the music really gives an emotional tone. So just like my um, libretto, my story outline, um, the music informs all of the other artistic aspects because it gives that emotional feeling and sort of tells the story um, in that way. And then I have meetings with like the set designer and I talk about here's what I'm picturing. And they're, they're very mathematically oriented. Like they'll, they'll say, oh, I give them this like, you know, grand picture and then they sketch it out and they have this exact drawing of what it will look like and what the audience will see. We talk about color. We pick the backdrops to coordinate with the set design. And then I also have meetings with the costume designer and um, the costume designer does the same, the same idea. I tell her, this is my vision. Um, here are the color ideas. And she'll do sketching. Like, is this what you mean? We'll look at different images online. Does this look like what you're picturing? We talk about how the different characters need to inform the color choices and the design choices for the costumes. And all of those things, of course, have to integrate together. And usually we meet um, all of us together as well as individually. So the lighting designer also can hear all these color ideas and the set um, conception so that he can also visualize what he wants to create so that it all works together. It's like a movie in that way. There's so many aspects that go into informing the audience's experience that um, you can't do it. It's, I'm not an auteur. I can't do it all myself. Yeah. I have to involve all these other people. And that's all these things happen either before or simultaneously with me creating the choreography, 
which is really the most um, like visually important, vibrant aspect of an audience's experience is watching the dancers. Um, so once I have the music, then I can start with the choreography, which is designing the steps, um, selecting, organizing, arranging, rearranging the steps so that they relate to the music, they tell the story, and they illustrate the characters. Uh, I have auditions where I give the dancers like Sarah um, a series of you know eight or 16 counts for different characters, and I can see which dancer embodies that character. Um, how I imagine that they move, as well as how I imagine that they look. And then from there, once I've cast it, which is um, sometimes the hardest part, because <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I have so many wonderful dancers, and I want to nurture them and encourage them and uh, help them grow with the roles. So giving the right role to the right person at the right time is also part of what I do. And they're students. Um, so I also need to make sure that I'm giving them something that will um, put on a good performance and that they'll feel confident doing. So that's a lot to balance. And then we have rehearsals. Uh, for me, I tend to listen to the music over and over and over and over and over. Um, my husband will be like, okay, the same 16 counts over and over. <laughs> but then, then I really internalize it and I can create the steps and then I teach it to the dancers and I observe them. How do they take it in? Uh, what does it look like on them? Is it too fast? Is it too slow? Do I need to change it? Is it communicating what I'm intending? And over months of that process, we finish like the setting of the choreography and the cleaning of the choreography, and then we get to the theater. And there's a whole other long conversation about what happens there. Yeah. So what does that time look like? But you said months, so yeah. Uh, it really depends. If it was a professional company, it would be different because I could have them all day, all the time. Right, That's my dream. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for the for this, we started the music conversation and the design conversations over the summer. And Henry was working on the music over the fall. And I would meet with him and listen to what he had, and we would talk about it and refine it. Uh, so that took most of the months of the fall, but it, that was a very accelerated process for him. Normally he has more time to do that. Um, it was so such an accelerated timeline that he actually um, invited other artists to work with him for the composition and the orchestration. And once we had a piano reduction of the score, which is Henry's um, main melodic choices arranged in such a way as to create the whole hour-long ballet, um, I had that music recorded on what's called a MIDI, which is like mm -hmm. a piano. Um, it plays the piano for you. And you can, it's beautiful. It sounds just like a piano. It has no soul because it's a machine and not a person, but you can still hear it and um, learn the choreography with it. And they finally just now finished the orchestration. So we can listen. That's also been recorded on um, a machine. Okay. So, and again, it sounds amazing. You can hear all the different instruments and how they relate. But it, you can tell there's not a person um, behind all those instruments. Yeah. So we that that just happened. Auditions were January, and we've been rehearsing since then. And when is the performance? May fifth and sixth. There we go. Yes. May fifth and sixth. So, Sarah, listening to that, what? comes to your mind as you hear all the things that goes into oh I am coming out to go through selection you know I'm in a tryout here um, have you been exposed to that process in the past 
Yes, I've been exposed to it since I was itty bitty in the first Nutcracker that I ever did. You do it ever, like every single time you have a show, most most of the time, and yeah. you, the audition process is really honestly it's more fun than stressful now because we'll all be in the lounge and we'll be like oh what do you think she she gets and what do you think she gets oh well she did really good at that I didn't expect that it's a whole it's an audition process for ourselves too because sometimes we predict the cast list (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's like a fun game for us and honestly whatever we get we always try to see the best in it Even if it's not what we wanted, I have come to find out that it's what we needed and I'll be mad about it for like two days and then I'll get to (laughs) rehearsal and I'll be like, oh, I see why that happened. Nice. So if you would, for, you know, the listeners here, um, we've talked a lot about the process. Tell us a little bit about the School of Ballet Indiana and Ballet Indiana, if you would, just to circle back around how many students like you know how many performances give us a little background there well we have um, I think approximately 80 students in the school of all those different ages um, up to adults Um, not all of them choose to participate in the performances uh, of Ballet Indiana but all Ballet Indiana auditions are open to all dancers in the area so anybody who's interested is welcome to come and audition and we have uh, um, dancers from several different schools participating in our spring show which is Rumpelstiltskin talked about the whole production process yeah mention the name of the ballet that's what it is it's Rumpelstiltskin so the school of ballet indiana um our mission is you know to teach dancers and to nurture children as they grow because not all of them want to be dancers but they're all going to be people and they're all going to be you know engaging with their community and um they're all going to need to be you know developing confidence and strength and comfort in their skin in their bodies so we try to nurture them and then we have uh, Ballet Indiana produces the performances for School of Ballet Indiana students and other dancers who'd like to audition. So it's really a production company. Um, and then the School of Ballet Indiana is really concentrating on the educational aspect. So curious, as a look at your website, what's a ballet birthday party? <laughs> we had one recently. Yes. <laughs> uh, so um, lots of dancers, not even dancers, lots of little girls especially. Um, They have this um, idea of what a ballerina is. And just like a princess, it's this vision. And so you can have a ballet-themed birthday party uh, with uh, ballet-themed decorations and games and cake and all those things. And they host it at the studio so that you can be in, you know, a ballerina's space and dance as well at your birthday party. We just had one. They're very, very fun. Yeah. Lots of sparkles in the studio and balloons. <laughs> yes, definitely. I can assure you that Danny will put her whole heart and soul into it. Yes. Yeah. So when you look at the school and you look at where we're at, I mean, how does how – does, so you, I'm guessing after looking at the website right across the street, you perform at the victory. Yes. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. How does that historic uh, space play into the overall experience for you, Sarah? And, you know, you carry as, as the visionary of, of how that all works and plays out. I mean, that's a, 
I mean, that's a legacy space, right? And how does that impact what you're at, you know, you're going through and you're creating choreography and something that's a little different here and there, but you're in this, this grand space. Uh, talk a little bit about how that impacts not only your experience, but the experience of, of the ones that are there watching. Um, well, well, I'm there. We're down in the basement part of it and there's a dressing room and if you go outside the dressing room there's so many signatures from all the different shows that have ever been done down there obviously not all of them but a lot of them and going back there two times a year is so special to us because it's such a beautiful space in the theater and the stage is so big and it's something so different to us and every time we go to the theater it's like it's like Disneyland because yeah. we get to we get to wear whatever we want for warm-up classes and we get to have <laughs> the warm-up classes on stage and it's such a special feeling like when you're warm, warming up and you get to see all the seats and knowing that they'll be they'll be filled later it's just so it's so magical it's like a a shrine <laughs> just yeah we keep it so special that's cool so you everyone that's went through there is signed the wall yeah hmm Yes, Weird Al has signed the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so how does how does that really, does it put any pressure on you? At, at this point, like when we get to the theater, I honestly feel relieved because most of my work is done. Okay. <laughs> I've done all this, you know, months and months of work and communication, and then I give it to the dancers, and they take it, and they run with it. So um, at first it was very difficult for me, but now I enjoy that part. I really I like releasing it and knowing that I've you know given it everything, put my heart and soul in it, and now it's just in the world. I have to depend on the dancers and the um, the tech crew and the designers to you know show it to the audience. Uh, I loved performing because I loved making that connection with the audience. The theater it is like a church in a way. It's a very special place, and it's inspiring to be in it and to know that you're there to reach out and to connect with your audience to. You know, to give to them a little bit of joy, a little bit of happiness, a little bit of escape, uh, whatever they need, maybe get them to think about things in a different way. So that connection is really powerful, and I'm really grateful that we have the opportunity to do it in the theater. Uh, in terms of the preparation, we have to plan around the theater's space, like what is the floor dimensions and what, um, what do we have space-wise to hang drops, how many can we use, um, what how much space do we have for the dancing if we have this size set piece in the back of the stage? <laughs> so all of those things uh, come into play. And the, you have to think of the sight lines because of the shape of the house at the Victory. It's really, they designed that theater more for the orchestra and for the experience of the audience listening. So there's some seats on the sides that I have to make sure I know the that they're gonna be able to see the action. So I have to put action in such a place where everybody in the house can see it and follow the plot of the ballet. Uh, just walking in, I'm sure, as an audience member, you have that feeling of excitement because uh, you know you're coming into a theatrical immersive experience. Um, backstage, it's chaotic. It's like a duck. You know, They swim as fast as they can under the water and on the top it's smooth. The audience sees the smooth. <laughs> it's one of my favorite analogies. As we can. <laughs> yes. And how long does that last? Like if I'm going to a performance, you know, hour, two hours? Well, t the Nutcracker, we, we treat you every fall, is um, approximately two hours long. Um, in the spring, 
what we're doing this year is the first act is several shorter contemporary ballets. Um, so, you know, two to five minutes. And then after intermission, we're doing Rumpelstiltskin. And that ballet is about an hour. So the whole performance will be 90 minutes to maybe an hour 45. The theater really gives all the dancers an extra boost of confidence and inspiration. Like we've been rehearsing for months and months and months. And rehearsing is one of my favorite parts of the process, but after a while it gets really exhausting. And so you get to the rehearsal, the theater, and you have these long rehearsals. But being in that space is just, it gives you so much extra energy. And you really want to like dive deeper into your character and your dancing. It's really inspiring. Well, I love the, uh, curious you talk a little bit, the, the transfer of I'm handing it over now. It sounds like um, even in the world of business, right, there's the owner who wants to do it and make sure that they see it all the way through and they bus basically touch every process along the way. And, you know, sometimes the uh, characters involved don't get to have their autonomy and show their vision and how that looks. Uh, it sounds like you've went from own, you know, from the operator role, that operator role of I do everything, I'm in it, I'm in it, I'm touching everything. Now you fully become the owner where you're like, you know what, this is your role, this is yours. Um, I look forward to seeing how you interpret my vision and you're okay to be in that now. How, tell me, how long did that take? Because everybody thinks it's like that. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. I think um, as I matured as a person, I was a little bit able to let go of that control. Um, when I was a student choreographer and my choreography is being judged by my teachers um, and my directors, I was a lot more anxious about it. But now I think of it as an opportunity to share something. I shared it with my dancers and then they're going to in turn share it with the audience. So there's less pressure on me. I also am like a recovering perfectionist. So... <laughs> I've had a lot of chances to practice that. Like, I can't impose that on everybody. I have to accept that there are artists bringing um, their art to it as well. They're not paintbrushes. They're people. Right. It's still one of the hardest things, I think, as a either an entrepreneur or even someone who's been in the business for 20 years or even 15 or even eight. One of the hardest things to really grasp is, like, why can't everyone do it the way that I do it, right? <laughs> yep. Mike, what's your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, or you you want to? You're trying to teach them. We try to teach. I try to teach more big picture, right? Like, here's the reasons why we're doing all this. You need to figure out the best way for you to do it. But yeah, for us, for me, it's always the experience of that that the end of the project when it's built and it goes to the owner and you're. So I have many projects that. You're free to walk around, like basically like you own the building and all the contractors know you're there. And now all of a sudden it's you're locked out. It's like no longer you're allowed in unless you knock on the door right. and, and so on. You know, so I can I get that how you feel sometimes because you're like, man, you put your heart and soul into a project for years. And then it's like, OK, there it is. Now it's someone else's. <laughs> I really love that feeling, though. I really do. Um the process of working with the dancers, the older they are, the more collaborative it is. And 
I feel really grateful that I'm able to work with other artists, that I can say, here's my idea to the costume designer, and she could say, oh, well, what about this? And it just gets better um, from there. I feel like that input and that collaboration is a treasure, um, especially with the dancers, um, that when they're Sarah's age, um, it's much more interactive. I can say, how does that feel? You know, how is it working? I need more of this. I need less of that. And they give input. And the character comes out of the way that they move. So it, I don't know, it's even the whole collaborative process is a, a give and take. So giving it up at the end, I don't know, it feels joyful to me. So you talked a little bit earlier about you actually hand it off and it's a machine that records, you know, the audio. Um, how, you know, as I hear that, I start to think about where we're at today and in our world, it's AI is like, I mean, it's everywhere. As we, I don't open an email in every morning. It's, hey, chat GPT this or this AI, you know, autonomous smart device is making this or this cognitive piece is creating art. So how has the digital world that, you know, fast forward, I mean, 15 years back, I'm sure it was way different than what it was five years ago, but how is digital really impacting such a classical um, thing as ballet? How's well, I feel like um, the pandemic accelerated that. Uh, there was, for a long time, like there was no one would even conceptualize having a ballet class over the computer. You have to be in the space with the bodies or choreographing you know, over the computer, We're trying to set a step on somebody when you can't be in the space with them. So it, it really has transformed it in that way. Like we have students who take private lessons um, via Zoom weekly with some contemporary choreographers that live far away. And we're very grateful that, you know, they're able to do that, but it's so, it's so different. Yeah. The camera creates this trapezoid. So what you see, it's like, it's just completely different than when you're in this space with them. And there was a lot of movement that was choreographed specifically for that trapezoidal shape during the pandemic, which is exciting and inspiring. And we actually did a piece, a couple pieces for the camera during the pandemic, rather than try to have an audience full of people. Yeah. Uh, so that was amazing to me to look at dance from that perspective and for the dancers also, because the normally we can we don't control the audience's perspective they're in one place and we move in front of them. But with a camera, then you move the audience's perspective in all these different directions. Choreographically, yeah. that was really inspiring. Uh, in terms of technology that I use every day, um, the rather than Zoom, although I do use that for meetings, like Henry's in Berlin and one of the other composers, Malon Burv, is in LA and we have to figure out how to meet and it's all over Zoom. Yeah. And we're hiring musicians to come and play in the Ballet Indiana Symphony Orchestra from all over the country because they can do auditions that way and fly them here. So it's it's really broadened um, like the base that we have because we can reach out all over the world. And um, I use a particular app for my ballet class that I can say, oh, I want this many bars of music to play for this exercise. And it's so easy since I don't have an accompanist to play for class. I don't have to use a CD, which is, you know, eight bars of eight or whatever all the time. Yeah. So there it's it is rapidly changing. I have no idea really how um, AI is affecting the world of ballet, but yeah. I, I'm looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> well, I was going to say you mentioned, you know, when you talk about the piano and someone playing it in the soul. Yeah. 
So I always, I, you know, I agree. It sped everything up, but now I feel like everything's coming back because in person. And I just wanted to, you know, we have a question about a space that makes you emotional, but how do you have that emotion through virtual? Right. Like there's, to me, it's impossible, but get your thoughts on that. Just Well, that emotional connection that's created between the audience and the performer, I think it, it is going to be different when you're in the room with the person and you're making eye contact with them and you're hearing their shoes on the floor and seeing them sweat than watching it on the camera. Yeah. So I don't, I have a preference in terms of what I think is more enjoyable, but I also don't want to take away. It's just a different way of appreciating the art of looking at it and being able yeah. to expose people to it. And I think that that can only be good, that increase in exposure and availability. Like we can watch um, a Pacific Northwest Ballet. We can watch them do a live performance in the studio on a big TV. That's so wonderful because our dancers aren't going to be able to fly to Seattle and see that show. So that's it's not the same. Mm -hmm. But I'm still happy that it happens. <laughs> yeah, it's exposure, right? It's uh, my my son is able now to, you know, he works with a baseball team out of Indianapolis. But when we he works out here, I actually do FaceTime with his coaches in Indy so that they can even impact like what's happening here even with the instructors that he may have. And it's more of that collaboration and it's all hands on deck. Is there, I just have to ask, as I was thinking about his training, is there like AR, VR, like Oculus training yet? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool though. Yeah. Or you have the camera that's watching the form and the shape and you have the headset on. And I didn't know. I was just wondering, is it there yet? I don't think so. Ballet is really all about balance and you kind of need your eyes for that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. See, and I like, I was going to say, I liked actually for a live performance, I actually like seeing a little sneak peek into the background of what's happening. Like as they're going off stage mm -hmm. or they're coming on stage or like an orchestra and the, the, the guy doing the drums might be doing the cymbals or doing several different and he's got to switch and watching how they switch and change out as much as the performance, right? Yes, yes. I mean, it's inspiring because that's another human being. And you think, oh, wow, it's amazing what people are capable of, what we can do. Yeah. So as we are already 40, almost 45 minutes into this podcast, see how fast it goes? Um, you know, to set the tone, there was the question in the very beginning, and we talk about the word experience a lot. Carrie, what is that word mean to you? I can think of it really from two distinct ways. I think of my experiences with other, my history, my influences, and how that informs what I do and what I have to offer to my dancers and my audience. But I also think of it in terms of what I'm trying to create, what the learning experience I try to create in the studio, and then the theatrical experience I'm trying to create for the audience, which is, you know, hopefully immersive and magical and inspiring, um, involving all the senses as much as possible. Yeah. Sarah? Um, I think experience to me really means time and how, how long you've been doing it, because you can do ballet for 20 years, but never, no one ever perfects it. Mm -hmm. it. Experience is really about time and what you put into it in ballet in this situation. What about uh, that we, space? Well, I think we already asked that, you know. I think well, it's there's Victory a, Theater or it's the stage or 
it's the performance, right, that makes you emotional. Mm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Is there any other space that you've like walked into and you're like, wow, other than the victory? Um, I definitely have walked into my older studios before or like the space that we're in now. It used to be a different studio that was like a the theater mm -hmm. um, and a education for theater. And that's where I first learned my my really dedication to dance. And so going back in there after we moved from a different space to this space that we're in now, it was really emotional because I was like, wow, I've I've learned so much in between the time that I've been away and now what I'm bringing to the studio is so much different and the dedication that I now have for ballet is just, it was like, wow, my little Sarah would be proud of me now. <laughs> So is that part of what you guys do that like students that moved on, you know, you said you have some students going to college and they're they're out in the world and then them coming back, you know, and being an inspiration to the next generation is that how does that work in, in your guys' world? Well, all of our alums are welcome to come back and take class for free. And so we have dancers who will come home on a break and they'll take class with us to stay in shape. And it's very emotional to see them for me because I'm so proud of them. And the whole purpose of what I do is to send them away. So <laughs> I treasure them and nurture them. And then I'm like, goodbye. So I love it when they come back and they're, you know, they can share their experiences and uh, what they're proud of. And the dancers who are here can see there's more than what we do. It goes even further than what we do. I think that's wonderful for them. And the dancers that have gone away to college and maybe they aren't performing anymore, they're studying, you know, psychology or whatever other thing they happen to be into, they'll come back and take class. And it has that same, that same exciting emotional connection that, you know, ballet nurtures the whole person and not just the future dancer. So we love it when our alums come back and take class. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's all like your old friends coming back and sharing what they've done. And it's so exciting. I'm so excited for them. And when they come back, you know, ballet is really intense. And so we have this, like, unwritten sympathy for each other sometimes. <laughs> and it's like you're coming back and you're like, oh, wow, this is crazy. We can share these experiences again. Yeah, so you have this mentorship of not only what's happening or what's happened in this space, it's them bringing back and sharing as a community Uh I love that mentorship is and that next generation or that generous generational passing of, of that information uh, really is the experience, I think, um, that that shapes that memory. It's either positive or negative, And it sounds like this one is is very positive. Yeah. Sometimes they'll come back and they'll do class and they'll be like, oh, that's going to hurt tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as we start to wrap up this app 530 on main podcast uh, brought to you by VPS architecture and extend group. Um, let's think about a few things. Um, we've talked about the word experience and, and what that looks like. Is there a product that you think is like, you know, it's perfect. It couldn't be like it's the design and the experience has been delivered at the, at perfection or near perfection. In my opinion, we point shoes is what we use every day that I think have almost been perfected. I think <laughs> nothing can be perfect in ballet ever, but point shoes, there's so many different varieties and we use them every single day. 
they're getting there. They're getting there. Yeah, different varieties. What's that? What does yeah. that mean? For There's so many different brands, and each brand may have a signature thing to them, like different sizes of things. It's kind of hard to explain. But even in within each brand, there's hundreds of types of, of point shoes that you can buy. And, oh, you want triple X width. Like we go by X's for the width. So do you want 1X, 2X, 3X, no X, the length, the vamp. There's so many different varieties of point shoes now that you you – it's, you don't, it's not like you don't have an option mm -hmm. at that point. You have an option. And everyone tries to find just the right shoe. We have this idea there's a magical shoe out there for everyone. And it's a process when they first start to wear them, how they, you know, they try a shoe and they like it or they don't like it, and they have to keep refining it. And their feet grow and their feet change. And dancing on your toes actually thickens the bones of your feet. So even when you're done growing, your feet can still change and you need to mm -hmm. get a new kind of shoe. And the fitting process is very complex. Yes, definitely. But there, they are, there is a shoe for everyone. There really is. I've been dancing for on point for like four or five years now, and I still have not found the perfect shoe. I'm still getting there, and it's such a process throughout your career. So who's a, the top-of-the-line point shoe? Like, is there... I mean, free London is pretty classic. yes. But it definitely takes a special person or type of foot to yeah. really get there. Interesting. So do you shape? Yeah. So it sounds like it's the foot, you know, the shoe is shaped for the foot, not mm -hmm. the, yeah. It's not the custom come in and mold. Is it molded and fit to the exact or is it the shoe? It's like it comes from the factory or from the um, individual and your foot goes in it. Typically that's how it's done. Um, you can special order shoes, which are you know more specifically designed for your feet, but they're even more expensive. Okay. And point shoes are already very expensive and they don't last very long. Yeah. I have a dancer that'll go through a pair of shoes in one class and she has to try to keep them going as long as possible. And they can be like $100 a pair. Oh, my. Thank you to my mom. I'd like yes. to shout out my yes. mom. Yes, shout out to all the parents <laughs> who buy all the point shoes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it's an expensive thing. <laughs> and you get a point shoe, and you sew it, and you try it on, and it just doesn't work. And you can't do anything about it because you can't return it after it's been worn. Yeah. And so feel like you're flushing money down the toilet but it's thank you mom carrie <laughs> <laughs> any uh any other tool that you found that's been perfected in your day-to-day -day activities well uh, I, I think of this in two directions the first is the ballet class which is designed hundreds of years ago and we're still essentially following the same structure and it's perfect um if, you know, uh, physical uh, scientists, uh, therapists have studied it and it warms you up and prepares you for exactly the movements that you're going to be doing. So it's, it's perfect. It's beautiful. And then, like, I use this app, the ballet class app, and I love it because I can change the tempo of the music. I can change how long the track is. I can find... I can look up and find, oh, I need a mazurka, I need a polka, I need a 5-4. I can find all that in the app and use it. So it's very handy, <laughs> very handy for yeah. teaching. She can torture us when she needs to. <laughs> Make it really slow. Slow. Really fast. 
So is there off the off the product, is there a brand that you have you think has the most authentic experience? Who's like doing it right? It could be a person, it could be a play or it it could be a an opera house, it could be anything. Is it an individual, a company? I think that Carrie Lambert's doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> There go. There's a lot of really wonderful companies in America. We're very blessed to have um, a lot of companies. There's some that are on really huge budget, amazing performance opportunities, long contracts for their dancers, like the New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, Pacific Northwest Ballet. And then there's a range of other performing companies uh, with like lower budgets, but still putting on really wonderful performances that people get exposed to, all the way down to like a regional company like us, which is you know primarily students with occasional professional guest artists producing ballets that you know anyone can see. And we have school organizations that come and see the show for free, so children can experience something that they might not otherwise ever have the opportunity to do. So there's, I'm just, I'm inspired by that whole range, um, and of course the top companies are you know, inspiring to me. Mm -hmm, definitely. And the top companies, they definitely, like, you talk about a perfect company, have to have a balance between the environment and the dancing. Like, there's such talent at a lot of these companies, but a lot of the environments is really harsh, which sometimes can be good, but sometimes can be bad in other scenarios. So is it a personality thing or more the type of dance? Like, when you go to get involved in a company, you know, I could see where... You know, just like in sports, like Sean said, oh, yeah. you know, I always needed a hard coach that would push me, mm -hmm. push me. That's just how I was. I needed that. If a coach was like, oh, you're doing a good job all the time, I'd be like, oh, I'd get lazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so just curious if that happens. Do you choose it up? I think that comes down from the top. The artistic director really sets the tone. Um, but I also find that some of my dancers, they, I mean, I don't, I don't embarrass them. I don't think that that's a, a learning tool. No. Shame yeah. is not a learning tool. Uh, but I, there are some that I push in a different way than others. Some of them need to be encouraged. And they if I correct them in front of everyone else, that is hard on them. And yes. then others um, need to be pushed more aggressively. So it really depends on the dancer and what they need. Um, and I am, you know, we have a, the school environment that we created is very positive and nurturing so that I have that opportunity when I have a really talented dancer who needs to be pushed, I can push them. When I have a dancer that needs, you know, a more soft touch, I can do that. But it really depends on some artistic directors, especially in professional companies, like they're dealing with professionals. And so they're very, just a matter of fact, these are the rules and you do it this way or you're out. Yeah. Yeah. So I love, I mean, I love where this is going and I'd love to spend a lot longer on it, but how, how much time does it take you to develop those relationships with each one of your students to know the proper amount of support and challenge? Well, it depends on, I mean, some of them you see it right away. You meet them in the lobby, you meet their parents, and you're like, okay, this is what this kid needs. And you can just tell by how they introduce themselves and how, like, they're standing physically body language, of course, is a big indicator for me. Yeah. Um, but then, like, someone like Sarah, who I've been teaching for, like, five or six years, you know, she's also evolved. So at, while I learned about her when she was, you know, 11, <laughs> 10 years old, and I, what she needed to be nurtured then, like, it's changed as she's grown up. So it, I think I can get a read right away, but I also have to be... Um, 
aware that it's going to evolve and change. And some dancers at first are shy and then they become really confident and bold and I have to let that happen and uh, observe them. Love it. All right, Mike. Uh, Mike has a deck of cards over there. We found that <laughs> scrolling through the internet one day, or it found me actually, um, <laughs> not the other way around. Um, it's called Pod Decks, and it has some interview questions, and no one gets asked the same question twice now. The card <laughs> goes in. Uh, you get to pick. Okay. No Random. Yeah. We can answer with and you. And you can say, yeah. I don't want to answer that, that and that's a bad pick question. Another pick yeah. another one. Can I ask you? you oh, we'll, 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 we'll answer, okay, too. Yeah. Yeah. Along with you. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I have this immediately. <laughs> My dad um, has always told me one day at a time. And especially through ballet, you just have to take it step by step. Because if you try to jump to the end, then it goes nowhere. And you get overwhelmed. Okay. Um, mine's along the same same road. Um, you have to slow down to speed up. Like, that's the best advice that um, even as I coach either youth today and I talk about how we are out on the softball field and how this needs to work or if it was in basketball or even if I'm coaching an executive today at an organization uh, we we severely overestimate what we can get done in a short amount of time and and do not appreciate what we can get done in a in a longer like in a three-year period or you know instead of thinking that's a three-month process you know what that's a nine-month process so i think it's uh for me it's slow down to speed up what do yeah, you have mine's kind of a combination uh one thing i didn't know when i was younger which i wish someone would have told me was ten thousand hours yeah. I was right? going to say that. Exactly. <laughs> oh, <are you? laughs> Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Yes. 10,000 hours. So, and it, it, if I was going to say, if you're not a fan of Groundhog Day, if you've ever watched that movie, I have. So, they've actually shown how many years he was actually in that cycle yeah. to be able to perfect everything he perfected. But, uh, but yeah, that was one. But also, you know, also hearing that, the other one was, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Yeah. One bite at a time. Mm -hmm. Right, because it can seem enormous, but you just, the more you do it and you look back, like Sean said, a year later and look what I've accomplished, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, as a dancer, I always felt like I wasn't, I should have been better. I wasn't where I should be. And I, so I spent most of my performing career and my training just like frustrated with myself. And even though I was learning and growing and improving yeah. all the time, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was good enough. So as a teacher, I sort of took that to heart, that 10,000 hours and the idea of going bird by bird and Lamont one piece at a time and anything that you do uh, with your passion and with your intensity and with your focus gets better over time and you are exactly where you're supposed to be yeah yeah definitely I think that's uh, yeah be present in you know whether uh, you know it's not how that last practice went or that last rehearsal went, or that last game, that's not defining you. It's Or how you're, where you're going to be, where you think you're going to be next year. It's really being in that moment and, and, and being present with that and being able to experience what's really, like, I, that's the true win, I think, because we're, we're, we're so focused because of the way technology is, you know, integrated into our lives and, 
you know, I can have 20 different relationships all in like 30 seconds through Snapchat and, you know, me just taking a picture of the ceiling. I, I keep my streak going, but like to truly be able to slow down and go this right now is important um, for anyone. I think uh, where we're at today would would be a, another valid point. So um, as we wrap up, what is one thing that you are looking forward to experiencing the rest of the year? Um, I'm excited for the show. It's really exciting. Um, I'm also excited for, I don't know, every single class we have. Yeah. <laughs> Just the experience being at the studio. You know, my friend Elena, she's a senior, and she is graduating and moving on. And so I'm excited to just appreciate the rest of the time I have with her and other people at the studio. That's great. Carrie? I'm really excited to see Rumpelstiltskin on this stage um, because it's it's my baby in a way that no other ballet has ever been because I was such a part of its process from the very beginning. It's um, so much my creation, and I'm really proud of it, and I'm excited to see it be on the stage. So tell us, how does one connect with the School of Ballet Indiana and Ballet India? You can go to the schoolofballetindiana.com. Check out our website that has all of our contact information. Very nice. It's right here. On the you can see Sarah there on the picture. Oh, God, don't look at me. <laughs> you look beautiful. And then for Ballet Indiana, it's balletindiana.org. And the show is at the Victory. You can get the tickets through Ticketmaster to see Rumpelstiltskin this spring. Okay. Any other uh, productions you'd like to talk about before we roll out? Well, we always do Nutcracker in December, so you can start looking forward to that at the Victory Theater Live Orchestra. Very exciting. Social media on that? Yes. Which platforms? Instagram. We're starting a TikTok. Yeah. (laughs) Check us out on TikTok. There'll be a lot of funny videos there about ballet. Um, Instagram. Instagram. Yes. All right. At School of Ballet Indiana. At School of Ballet Indiana. Okay. Mike, any uh, closing thoughts as we wrap up this at 530 on Main episode? No, it was enjoyable. Pleasure having you both. Really appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Glad we got you out of school, but hopefully your teachers won't be too mad. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up here, I'd like to say thanks to all of our listeners as you've uh, supported us over the years. Like I said at the beginning, I've been doing this now for three, four plus years, and it's uh, been a joy to have these conversations with uh, people who are doing amazing things in our community. Uh, Please go to extendgroup.com or vpsarc.com. There's a big logo at the bottom right of each website that says at 530 on main. It's the logo. If you click there, you can listen to all the episodes. Uh, You can see who's been on the podcast, but more than importantly, there's a form on there that says if you would like someone in our community who's doing great things to be on it, refer them. Let them know that this is an opportunity to have a conversation about what good they're doing in our community. And it's all about that experience that uh, of enhancing our Evansville region. So uh, once again, that's at extendgroup.com and vpsarc.com. Like, share, tell us how we're doing, five star, one star. It all helps us out. And um, as always, until next time, at 530 on Main.
Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of At 530 on Main, hosted by Sean Collins and Mike Davis. Please leave us a review and share your thoughts on today's episode. Let us know how you've been inspired or what you would like to hear on future episodes. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, help us spread the word. Share us on your social channels. Message a friend. Rate the podcast. Without you, this experience would not be possible.